The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Have you heard, um, have you heard about the doomsday clock? How many people have heard about the doomsday clock? Just raise your hand. It was in the news again uh, this week, of course. It's a symbolic clock. It's not a real clock. It's, it's symbolic. And it was uh, created in 1945, a fairly important date in history in that that was the end of World War II. And uh, right after World War II, a group of scientists who had actually helped develop the first atomic weapons, and of course, two atomic bombs were dropped uh, on uh, Japan during the war, and so there was a sense of the destructive power of this. And the scientists who had worked on that got together. They developed this doomsday clock to kind of warn the world about the danger um, of a doomsday scenario. Today, the group includes, it's still going, it includes physicists and environmental scientists from around the world who decide on an annual basis Uh, what factors um, are coming into play to contribute to them either moving the clock closer to doomsday or uh, further away from it. So they set the clock every single year, and this past week they got together, held a press conference, and they adjusted the clock. It was at three minutes to midnight. They've now adjusted it by 30 seconds. It's two and a half minutes to midnight according to their reckoning. Now, according to these scientists, the reason why, they gave several reasons why the world has now edged closer to the apocalypse. And uh, this is all information that's coming from a BBC report. Here's uh, the uh, six factors that they gave. The first one um, surrounds the the, uh, most recent presidential election and inauguration. President Donald Trump's statements on climate change, expanding the U.S. nuclear arsenal, and the questioning of intelligence agencies, that's one of the factors. Just his statements have have been serving to destabilize the world. Uh, Secondly, there's a darkening global security um, landscape issue going on. The world just seems like it's uh, more unsafe today uh, than it has been for a long time, so they use that factor. The third would be the emergence of strident nationalism worldwide. In other words, people are becoming more nationalistic. Uh, more xenophobic, Uh, they're becoming, isn't it interesting that for all of our enlightenment, racial tensions seem to be at a a peak right now. And uh, that's one of the reasons why they've moved it forward. Uh, Fourth, doubts over the future of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Iran, uh, for a long time being considered a rogue state, started to move toward that, now doubts about that actually happening. A fifth, threats to cybersecurity. I think every time I go online, I just, I just assume somebody knows what I'm doing. Don't you think so? And, then, and there's so much information and how people can get it and hack into systems. And then sixth, uh, the rise of fake news. So what do we believe when we read things online now? And that's destabilized the world enough that, well, these scientists have decided to move the clock 30 seconds ahead. Now, I, I don't need to agree with their assessment of things necessarily to greatly admire the fact that they are acknowledging that the end is near. 
I don't for a minute think that these physicists and these environmental scientists are trying to be biblical, but they're being very biblical by pointing toward the apocalypse and reading the signs of the times. And I don't agree necessarily with their solutions to how we would move the clock back a little bit or if that's even possible to move it back. But what I do want to hear, what we need to hear, is what the Word of God says about the end times, the coming end of the age, the apocalypse, whatever you want to say about that. And so we're going to build off of last week's message in Luke chapter 12 that encouraged us to be ready for Christ's return. And we're going to ask this question, what else do we need to know as the end approaches? It's a good question, correct? What else do we need to know as the end approaches? Tell me everything that I need to know. Who's up for that? You want to, you want to hear that? Let's, let's get to that. And so let's get to God's word. Luke chapter 12, 49 through 59. This will finish the chapter for us. And then we'll get right into it. This is Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison, I tell you. You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Well, as the end approaches, know this first, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We may not like that, but it's the reality. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And in verse 49, Jesus lays, he lays a heavy on his listeners, and he says, I came, he's talking about his purpose, this is the reason why I came, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, as soon as you see something like that, you need to ask yourself the question, is is this a a positive in some way? Is this a negative in terms of fire? Because in the scriptures, fire can be used in two very different ways. And um, here, when we look at this context, an important question to always ask when studying the Bible is, if I'm trying to understand what this word fire means, I read all of the context around it, I read the verses before and after, and I decide, is the context showing me that fire is a positive here, is it a good thing, or is it not so great? Luke, in fact, uses fire in a very positive way when he writes in the book of Acts chapter two that uh, the Holy Spirit was descending on the disciples like tongues of fire. That's a positive use of it. But we see in other parts of the scripture, 
a book of Daniel for sure, where the fire flowing from the throne of God is the judgment of God on people. And that's actually the context we're talking about here. It's the end times. It's the, it's the judgment of those who are unrighteous. And so when Jesus says here that he's come to cast fire on the earth, this is a negative judgment kind of thing. And he goes on to say about it, verse 49, and would that it were already kindled. Yeah, at a first reading of that, you go like, is Jesus saying, I think we're uncomfortable with Jesus talking like this, in fact, is Jesus saying here that he wishes that the fire of judgment was already happening, knowing what the implications of that are? Is that what Jesus is really saying? Because that seems overly harsh, and it, it's uncomfortable for us to think about Jesus saying something like that. And in fact, it, it is where he's going, but maybe not in the way that you would think. It's more Jesus saying this, I kind of wish this were already over and done with. I kind of wish that sin and death were already eradicated from the earth. In my heart, what I want is for the people who love me, who have been called to salvation, for them to be enjoying all the benefits and all the blessings, the inheritance that God has set out. That's what he's really saying. I wish this were already done. And don't we also have that on our hearts? Just Don't we... Just just wish and desire that this were all already done? That there were no more death and no more sorrow and no more sin? That's Jesus' heart here when he says that he wishes that it were already kindled. He wants the benefits that are going to flow to us, the benefits of it all already being done. And Jesus knows that getting there is going to mean lots of pain and anguish. He knows that, in fact, better than any of us. And he says in verse 50, and this is where it becomes super personal for him, because we have a Savior who is not detached from our situation, but we have a Savior who is acquainted, the Scriptures say, acquainted with all of our griefs, a man of sorrows. So he gets it. And he says here in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now the baptism he's talking about is not water baptism. That had already happened, of course, several chapters before this in Luke. He had gone down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing and he uh, was baptized by John. That was his baptism. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, this is... Uh, the more literal sense, this is the very literal sense of the word baptism in the Greek, which means um, immersion. And he's really saying here, there's something I need to be immersed in, and what he's talking about is his distress or the sacrificial death that he's going to undergo. I I'm going to be immersed in death for you. That's what's coming my way. And you see that, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he was betrayed. He's off 
separate from the disciples and he's praying and pleading with God. And he pleads with him. You can read this in Luke 22. He pleads with the Lord. If it's possible, if there's any other way, could you take this cup from me? And when he talks about the cup, he's talking about the cup of suffering that's gonna come his way. Father, if there's any other way, would you please take this from me? And the, the, pr- the prayer, the pleading is coming out of the fact that the distress is falling down on him because he's in this moment begun to take all of the sins of the world on himself. He's taking your sins and my sins on himself. He's becoming sin. He who knew no sin is becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so all this agony is on him. He begins to take the sins of the world on himself and his sweat, again from Luke 22, his sweat became like great drops of blood. It has to get worse before it gets better. And Jesus shows us that. Jesus is really provoking the crisis for us so that it can get better for us. This has to happen. And so he asks this question to get us to a place where we're beginning to understand the weight and burden of all of this. The gravity of what he's about to do and what we're called to do. So that we can really get our heads around the coming of Jesus and being fully prepared for that. He asked this question, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Well, the answer to that question may seem super obvious. I mean, if we were to take that question and we were to go down to Dunlop Street and, and do some streeter interviews with people, just do a little survey and ask people, do you think that Jesus came to give peace on earth? If you asked 100 people that question, how many are gonna say yes? 100 of them. Everybody thinks of Jesus in that way. He's coming to bring peace on earth. In fact, if I were to survey you good church people who know your Bible as you came into the service, if I were to have asked a hundred of you, do you think that Jesus came to give peace on earth? You would all say, 100 of you would say, yeah, he came to give peace on earth. And we would have very good reason to say that and to believe that. And yet, verse 51 goes on. He he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? And then he answers the question, shockingly, no. No, I tell you, but rather division. Really? Uh, Jesus, did Isaiah not prophesy that you are the prince of peace. On the, on, the, on the day that you were born, did the angels not show up and declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace? 
Did, did your uncle, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, did he not go into the temple just days after you were born? Did, was there not a, a, a pronouncement, a prophecy made? Did he not say, peace would come, guide our feet into the way of peace, that the Messiah would come and guide our way into the way of peace. What about all that, Jesus? What about all that? Later in Luke, the crowds welcome him in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace, shalom. They would welcome Jesus in saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus, before he would enter into the gates, would look at that great city and he, and he wept over it. And he said this, Luke 19, 42, would you, would that you, even you had known this day the things that make for peace. What's he saying? They, they didn't get it. He went on to say, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You don't actually know what peace is. You actually don't know the way to have peace. They, like us today, are confused about the way of peace. Confused about Jesus' mission. Confused about why he came and the purpose for it all. Now for sure, and this needs to be acknowledged, when, when we come to faith as individuals, when we come to faith in Christ, Philippians 4, 7 says, he gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding and we have peace with him. Because he forgave our sins, we're reconciled to God. There's peace between us and God. No longer any hostility there. There's no doubt that when we become the followers of Christ and are living obedient to him and have the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that in our relationships with one another, he gives us peace. That in a, in a marriage that's founded on the word of God, there, there can be peace between husband and wife. That's unusual and divine. God gives us these things as a gift from himself where Christ is at the center. But even these remain tainted by sin in this life. Even in terms of the relationship with God, though he has declared that there's peace between us and God, we know that sin still exists. We still deal with it on a daily basis. We still need to ask for forgiveness. And sometimes when we're kind of out of step with God and rebellious toward him, we're not going to feel the peace that we have with him. And that's why we reconcile with him. That's why we do ask for forgiveness. That's why we try to stay as close to him as we can. But it's not perfect yet. Even in our marriages, though God may give us awesome marriages and we have peace between husband and wife. It's not always that way. There are still conflicts in good Christian marriages. Well, maybe not yours, but all the other ones around you. Once in a while, sometimes. It's not perfect yet. Even in that, there still needs to be a pursuit of peace because we don't always get it. 
There will be no enduring perfect peace until the end comes. That makes sense? No enduring perfect peace until the end comes. And see, this is where it begins to get super painful in what Jesus is saying. Because he's exposing the thing that we don't want to talk about, we don't even want to think about when he says this about peace. That following Jesus causes division in our most cherished human relationships. This is what he's talking about when he says, not peace but division in verse 51. What he's saying, and we need to hear, is that not everyone is saved for sure. And that when we come to faith in the gospel, it's very likely that people who love us and whom we love, that a new division will be set in place between us. And he says this in verse 52, for from now on in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, for example. Two against three, for example. And then he goes on to list a number of possible scenarios. They're just examples. It's not an exhaustive list. You can insert your own relational division example into it. Many of you already know the pain of all of this, of all the things that we're asked to endure in this life. Is this not the most painful and the most gut-wrenching? I really believe that personal trials that we might be asked to bear are easier to bear in a sense than knowing that a relationship is not right as a result of the gospel. It's painful that we would be divided from those we love in this life for no other reason but that we said yes to the gospel and they said no. But that, says Jesus, is the very nature of the gospel. We don't often think about this, but the very nature of the gospel is that it divides. In fact, in Peter's words, actually he's quoting from the Old Testament, the gospel is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to those who do not believe, 1 Peter 2a. The gospel divides truth from error, light from darkness. The gospel divides life from death, sheep from goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And you might say that that just sounds too harsh. And it is harsh. It's perhaps the harshest reality that we as human beings have to bear. And again, we don't bear it without understanding that Jesus also bore the anguish of this. That's what we saw in the garden. But he was driven. If I'm ever tempted to kind of say, I don't buy it, I don't like it, I don't want it, I'm not thinking about it. We can take comfort from the fact that Jesus felt the very same things. Take this cup from me. Let's find a different way. 
But one commentator said that Jesus was driven by the divine must. I must do this. God is compelling me to do this. He was compelled by his desire. Listen to this now. He was compelled by his desire to do the Father's will no matter how hard it was. Now that has massive implication. To be compelled by the Father's will to do whatever he says, even if it's hard. See, the gospel, if the gospel comes not to give peace but division, and I feel the weight and burden of that as I should, then I too have to get to a place where I'm driven by the divine must as well. Just as Jesus was. So I go in knowing that my love for Christ means that if I have loved, if I have loved ones who have rejected Christ, then I understand they may hate me, they may reject me, they may make my life difficult, they may not want to spend time with me, they want to, may want to have nothing to do with me. They may set limits on what we can talk about or not talk about. They may never ask me how I am, knowing that it could lead down a road to something they don't want to hear. I may understand all of that, that relationships may be strained, that family times may be difficult, that I might not get invited. Only because I embrace the gospel. And all of that, if we have the divine must, all of that should motivate us to show them Christ all the more. Now, I hope you feel compelled by all of that, but let's take it a little further, in fact. Let's make it a little, can I make it a little more painful? You say, sure, Todd, you've, you've, you've pushed the sword in. Go ahead and twist it. It seems to be what we do, right? But it's what's here in the text. Because if you want to feel the real pain of this, the pain that Jesus feels, then you have to understand the division is not just in this lifetime. But if nothing changes, the division is for eternity. And this is where we really don't want to go. We don't, we don't want to think about the fact that we're going to be separated from our loved ones forever. I'm not trying to be flippant about this at all. Because I've, I've had to do funerals for people who I knew were not believers. Really, there's nothing... There's nothing that I do is harder than that. How to, how to say words that are comforting to loved ones and yet know in my mind and not wanting to violate my own integrity by giving them a promise that I can't make. I've had to do it for family members who I knew were not saved. So what I'm saying is from my own heart, 
It's sincere. That we should be motivated by this. That we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking our loved one is somehow saved. That the gospel does divide. Some have accepted it and some have haven't. And people that we love haven't. So what should we do as a result of that? I jotted down some things. It should motivate us towards some change, don't you think? Towards certain decisions and behavior. That this should be a motivator to pray for lost more. I'm going to give you five things here. This should be a motivator to pray for the lost more. How often do you pray for those in your family who don't know Jesus? Secondly, I wrote down, this should be a motivator to be like Christ more. To be like him. To let the very manner of my life reflect Jesus Christ. Because you can be sure about this. The unsaved people in your life who know you're a believer, who know you've embraced the gospel, are watching you like a hawk. They're listening to your words. They're watching your actions. They're seeing if it matches what you profess. They're, they're watching your marriage, how you, how you speak to your husband or wife. They're watching how you're raising your kids. They're listening to the way you talk about your coworkers. They see the way you react around your neighbors. They're watching all of it. And they're looking to see if you're like Jesus or not. Does it, does it matter to you that you would be reflecting the holiness of Jesus Christ to the unsaved around you? Here's the third one. Uh, to show the love of God more. I mean, love of God toward them. To... to, to not necessarily saying that you have to always be sharing the gospel. Don't think about every time a family member comes to you who doesn't know the gospel, that every single time in order to be faithful to Jesus, I have to share the gospel with them. Stop it. My brother and sister-in-law don't know Jesus. She's almost entirely unchurched. Well, she is really. But my brother knows the gospel. He's rejected it outright. I might even go so far as to say he hates it. He hates any talk of it. My brother knows the gospel. He knows it. I don't need to share it with him. What I need to do, what Cheryl needs to do, what our three kids need to do, four, Jordan, sorry, <laughs> is we need, we need to show them the love of Christ. We need to show them what Jesus is like by how we interact with them. Fourth, because sometimes this is important, to boldly share the message of Christ more. There are times when you're going to be given the opportunity to open your own mouth and share the gospel from the scriptures or to tell your own story. This is where I was and I met Jesus and now it's like this. Or a fifth, simply to say, this is something of the culture here, simply to say, come and see more. Would you come to church with me? Would you, would you join me on the weekend? Come and see what God is doing. See, otherwise, if we're not committed to these things, there's no hope. There's no hope for them. 
And the division that exists right now between you and your loved ones will be a permanent, eternal condition. Apart from Christ, you and your loved one will always be separated and divided. They will never know the peace of God until they come to him for salvation. All right, let's look at this next. As the end approaches, know this as well. Everyone ought to see it coming. You know? Everyone, everyone ought to see this coming. The doomsday clock people, these uh, extremely intelligent scientific people see it coming. And the signs are all around us. People ought to be able to see it. Jesus says so in verses 45, 44, man, 54 and 55, he said to the crowds, when you see it, he's talking about the weather now. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. So he's speaking to Israel here. We got a map, I think. So this is Israel. It's a, a, a modern uh, map of Israel, and you can see where Egypt, that's the Sinai Peninsula where the word Egypt is, and, and the rest of Egypt is just below it, and Africa and then you see the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jesus says here, notice, when you see a cloud rising in the west, how many people have no idea where west is on this map? Okay, it's over here on the right. And so when the, when the wind is blowing from the west, it's going over the Mediterranean Sea, and it's picking up moisture. And when they see that happening, when the wind is coming out of the west, it's going to pick up all that moisture. And then when it goes out over the land, what's going to happen? It's going to rain down. I mean, that's all the snow we just got this morning, Correct. The wind went over Georgian Bay and it picked up moisture. And when it hit the land, it dumped it all on Barry. Right? That's the way it goes. Lake affects snow. Same principle here for Israel. Then he goes on to say here, um, and so it happens, uh, verse uh, 55, and when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Well, why is it going to be a scorching heat? Because it's that wind from the south is coming out, out of Egypt, out of the Sahara Desert, Hot, dry air blows up from the south. It's going to be hot today with a south wind. Now, if it's as definite as Jesus says it here, these people were way better at predicting the weather than our weather people are. <laughs> but I think he's, a, he's really just speaking to general principles here. And generally, we see these things happening seasonally in our climate as well. He says, you're so great at that. You're so great at predicting the weather. You just look up in the sky and figure it out on the basis of which way the wind is blowing. And yet, look all around you. You see the signs that are happening and you're not figuring it out. He says, verse 56, you're, you're hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is something far more important than predicting the weather and you're not seeing it. This is really the problem with our generation as well, an ostrich generation, really. Our head is in the sand about this. We really don't want to talk about these things, and we dismiss the doomsday clock people. We'll give them their one day where they have their press conference, and then we want to put it out of our mind until next year when they do it again, because we prefer to talk about positive things. We just want to keep it all light and happy and positive. We just want life to always be the Ellen show. Just always dancing and everyone gets a gift on their way out. Okay, but that's not exactly it. That's not what's happening. You say, well, what's different today? Why, why, is, why is the clock so much closer to doomsday today than it was in a previous generation or other times in history? And 
You know, other times in history had a lot of bad things going on, lots of conflicts, lots of wars, lots of devastating natural disasters, lots of disease epidemics. In fact, that killed millions more than would happen today. Genocide is nothing new. So what's, what's different about today? Why do we believe that we're so much closer today? And really, the, the word that came to my mind was globalization. You see, it comes down to this. We can travel to the far reaches of the world now in a day. We have instant communication with any place in the world. Diseases are not contained in regions but can travel the world now in the first class cabin. The monetary system, like no other time in history, and the global economy are really set up as a series of domino tiles. If one bad thing happens in one region of the world, it will take the rest of it down. Terrorism now knows no borders. There is no solution to the global drug problem. Cyber warfare and the big brother world that we live in mean that our digital signature is always vulnerable. And the environment, whatever you believe about this, the environment really is a mess. See, we're wearing this world out. We, we, we think about it in terms of renewable energy and things that we can reproduce, but we're wearing it out. The earth is a consumable product, and we're consuming it. We're using it up. At other times in history, our isolation from one another protected us. It took so long to travel and to communicate, but those protections are now gone like no other time in history, we truly do live in a global village. But living in that global village makes us so vulnerable. And we're poised to see the end come like never before. When the big disaster comes now, it's coming for all of us. Honestly, some of you might object to all this naysaying negativity and you might want a church that makes you feel good about yourself and the world and it's a really good thing that I'm not really too concerned with pleasing you this morning but only the Lord so that I can deliver this message and not skip these verses. You might argue that if we could just be positive and clean up the environment and hear what the terrorists are saying and set up educational programs to teach kids about drugs so we can turn this thing around. And I wish that that were true, but it's not. If I can talk in scientific categories for just a second, the cosmology, which is the, the study of the cosmos, of, of space, of planetary bodies and stars, of our own world, the cosmology of a follower of Jesus Christ, we do have one, is that heaven and earth will pass away. That's our cosmology. Our anthropology, the study of man, our anthropology is this, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so it's all rapidly moving toward an end. And it shouldn't be hard at all to, as verse 56 says, interpret the present time and see the deteriorating world around us and the sinful race of people inhabiting it. But listen, what I shared there is not our entire cosmology. It's not just that heaven and earth will pass away, but it's also Revelation 21 that God is bringing us a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? Amen. There's hope at the end of this. 
our anthropology isn't simply that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but also that whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. We ought to see all of this coming. It has to come, but there is hope. And so here's the last part here, and very quickly, acknowledge that now is the time to get right with God. Jesus asks a question and then tells a parable here in these last few verses and he appeals to the crowd to judge for themselves what is right. Just think about it. I just want you to, to think about all of these things, to figure it out, to look around you and see what's happening, what's coming. See the people are lost. See the people are without hope, that they're despairing, that there's pain without comfort, that they're consumed with the things that this world offers and finding it to be empty, that they're filled with fear, that they're looking for answers and finding none. Look around and see that that is not true. And so in verses 58 and 59, Jesus tells the story of a man who's going to court to settle a matter. And you might at first look at these verses and just go, well, this is just about a civil matter and he's just giving us counsel on how to solve a a civil matter. But again, when you're interpreting this in light of everything else he's just said about the judgment, you realize that it has nothing to do with a civil matter, that Jesus isn't concerned with trying to help you figure some conflict out between you and another person, that this is 100% about the judgment, that it's about you and I getting right with God as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I mean, I read that now in light of the context and I go, I think I'm the guy. I'm the guy headed to court. I'm the guy with the massive debt. The accuser is the evil one who's telling me that I have this massive debt I owe and I gotta figure out how to reconcile that before I get to the judge, before I get to Jesus Christ. Because once I get there, the accuser's gonna bring his accusation and I'm gonna be condemned and guilty and I'm gonna be forced to pay the whole amount. I'm gonna be cast in prison until I can pay the whole amount. Now I read that and I realize I'm the guy. This, is, this isn't about a civil matter. This is about the judgment's coming and I gotta figure it out before I get there. Jesus says, settle with your accuser along the way. Because if I get to prison, Jesus says, I'm never going to get out until I've paid the very last penny and and I I can't pay it. There's no amount of good works that I could ever do that could pay it. There's, There's no amount of being righteous and holy that could pay it. There's no amount of charitable giving that I could do that could pay it. I'm going to be in prison forever. I got to settle this now before I get to the judge, before I see Jesus, before it's too late, I have to get this settled. Only Jesus can pay the debt. And that's the settling I need to do with the accuser. Jesus has paid it for me. His death on the cross paid the price for me. So there it is, as the end approaches. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. We ought to see all the signs. And we better get things settled with God 
get it right with him before we get to that judgment day. As we think about how to respond to this, some of you very simply may need to talk to Jesus about settling the issue with him today. That you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ and you need to become one. You need to confess your sin. You need to go to him and say, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I want to settle the matter before I get to the judgment. You don't know how much time you have left. Settle it today. And I'm going to invite you in a few moments. Joel and Megan are going to play uh, over all of this time, this response time. But I'm going to invite you. If that's you, I want you to come and speak to me. I'm going to stand right up here at the front. But I want you to come and, and speak to me and say, I need to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I need to get this settled today. And then for the rest of us who are the followers of Christ, the great burden of this message really was in the first part when we think about the division that the gospel causes. And as we launch into our prayer emphasis week, I just know that the great burden of this church that many, many, many of you are carrying is that the gospel has put a division between you and some loved ones. And it's agonizing to you. And so we're going to open up the front here. There's lots of room for you to come and to kneel down and to plead with God for the salvation of those you love. It's as simple as that. And if you're sitting there and you don't have somebody in your life, I can hardly imagine that this is true, but maybe there's somebody, there, there's somebody here, you don't have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus then I'm gonna invite you to come if you see someone from your small group or someone from one of your serving teams who's up here praying and maybe you already know who their loved one is. You just come up and join them and kneel beside them and put your arm around them and pray with them and agree with them before God for the salvation of those they love. That's it, that's the entire appeal. We're not gonna sing, we're just gonna pray and go to the Lord right now for those whom we love. You come now. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.